It's early morning on Monday, the 27th of March, 1905. The spring fog hangs low over the streets of Deptford, waiting for the heat of the day to lift it. A street lamp flickers, sizzling. Nothing much stirs in these streets, save a mangy rat scurrying through the rancid remains of last night's revelries. The sex workers and drunkards are already in their beds, replaced on the pavements by milkmen and paperboys. As the sun rises, the hubbub of life creeps back into the streets of South London. 16-year-old William Jones bounces on the balls of his feet, nodding a greeting to the driver of the pony and trap rattling past. Still missing the warmth of his bed, William shivers as he hurries up the high street towards his place of work, Chapman's Oil and Colour Shop. He's been the assistant in the shop for a couple of years now, and he's never a minute late. The manager, Thomas Farrow, is an early riser, usually having been woken before opening time by a regular customer wanting supplies before starting their own jobs. Usually by the time William arrives, Mr. Farrow is already standing outside the open shop door, pipe dangling from his mouth, having a quiet smoke before the day begins. This morning, however, Mr. Farrow is not there, and William is surprised to find the shop locked and shuttered. Never, in all the time he's been working there, has the shop still been closed at 8.30. William's heart thumps. Something must be wrong. He cups his hands to the window, peering through a small gap in the shutters. No sign of life. That's strange. He knocks again, calling out to Mr. Farrow. Perhaps he's out the back. No answer. He looks through the window again, ducking lower this time to find a gap he can see through properly. No sign of either Mr. or Mrs. Farrow, but a couple of chairs lay on their sides in the parlor. William's stomach lurches. Something is definitely wrong. Dashing through the early fog, all thoughts of stiff legs and morning tiredness long forgotten, Young William rushes to the Greenwich branch of Chapman's Oil and Colour to fetch Louis Kidman, the assistant there. He'll know better what to do or how to get in. He's been with Chapman's a lot longer. The two men waste no time forcing their way into the locked shop through a neighbour's side entrance and, as they burst through the back into the parlour of Chapman's Oil and Colour, they find the shop a mess, with furniture strewn all over. Peering through the chaos, William sees something that will haunt his nightmares for years to come. Mr. Farrow lies in a crumpled heap, in a pool of his own blood, his head and body battered. He's dead. Reeling, William props himself against a wall. There's no sign of Mrs. Farrow, but William doesn't dare go any further into the shop for fear of what he might find. Kidman takes one look at the scene and tells William to run and get the police. Grateful for the chance to leave the room, the young man runs for all he's worth, all the way to the police station with the word murder heavy on his lips, not realizing that he was about to become a key witness in one of the most important cases in British forensic history. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the 
show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers. As we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. Fifteen minutes later, William Jones returns with Sergeant Albert Atkinson, who immediately takes charge. William is posted at the door, waiting for more police officers to arrive, and Sergeant Atkinson, having seen that nothing could be done for poor Mr. Farrow, follows Kidman upstairs to the flat, where the manager and his wife live, in search of Mrs. Farrow. There is no sound upstairs, and the men move quickly through the small hallway. Pushing the bedroom door open, Sergeant Atkinson sees Mrs. Farrow in bed, clearly badly beaten in the same way as her husband. He hears Kidman gasp behind him, calling out to the stricken woman. When no response comes, Sergeant Atkinson presumes that she too has been killed in the attack. Atkinson surveys the room, looking for any clues as to what happened, and spots an open cash box on the floor, its coin tray discarded beside it. A sixpence and a penny spilled on the carpet. Kidman tells him that his boss, Mr. Chapman, makes the rounds on Mondays to each of his shops to collect the previous week's takings. There would have been about 13 or 14 pounds in that box last night, over a year's salary for a labourer in Deptford at that time. A clear motive then for robbery and perhaps murder, Atkinson thinks. Knowing that the cash box will probably prove to be useful evidence, Atkinson moves it to one side. Hearing voices from below, Atkinson shepherds the assistant out of the room and heads downstairs, where Dudley Burney, divisional surgeon of police, has arrived to take charge of the bodies. Burney has already examined Thomas Farrow and pronounces him dead at 9.50. His estimation is that the shop manager has been dead for at least an hour. When Atkinson tells him that Mrs. Farrow is in a similar condition upstairs, Bernie goes to examine her himself. Surprisingly, he finds the woman alive. Unconscious, suffering from shock and severely injured, but alive. Bernie arranges for her to be sent to the Seaman's Hospital immediately. If she regains consciousness, her account of the night's events will be pivotal. Meanwhile, continuing his search of the property downstairs, Sergeant Atkinson finds what looked like two homemade masks, fashioned from stockings, cast aside near Mr. Farrow's body. The first, laying on the table in the parlor, has string attached to both sides. The other lies on the floor beside the table with no strings. Both have rough eye holes cut out of them, 
and are made from the same stocking-like material. Atkinson realizes that these must have been worn by the robbers, but why would they have left them here? Shortly after Mrs. Farrow is removed to the hospital, Detective Inspector Arthur Hailstone and Sergeant Alfred Crutchett arrive and locate the cash box and tray that Atkinson mentions on greeting them. Both Crutchett and Hailstone have heard about a new investigative method using fingerprints to identify criminals. And Hailstone reckons the team back at Scotland Yard would be keen to take a look at this cash box and the greasy smudge on the tray, which looks for all the world like a fingerprint. Sergeant Crutchett, covering his own prints with a piece of paper, moves the items out of harm's way, and Hailstone leaves him to guard the cash box while he summons the big guns. While there is no sign of a forced entry, the scene at number 34 High Street, Deptford, with evidence of murder, attempted murder, and robbery with violence, is enough for Hailstone to know that Scotland Yard will need to be involved. In fact, it would be three heavyweights from Scotland Yard who would lead the investigation and collectively piece together the evidence which would see the perpetrators come to trial. The case of the Deadford Mask Murders, so named by the press after the stocking masks found at the scene, was underway, and the fingerprint currently being closely guarded by Sergeant Crutchett would prove pivotal in solving it. First of the policing heavyweights to arrive was Assistant Commissioner for Crime, Sir Melville McNaughton. Now head of the Criminal Investigation Department, McNaughton had begun his career at Scotland Yard in 1889. He had been a member of the Belper Committee, which had recommended the use of fingerprints as a method of identification nearly five years earlier, and had, ever since, actively encouraged his officers to be fingerprint aware. Upon discovering what could definitely be a usable print on the cash box coin tray, McNaughton handed the items over to the second big hitter to join the case, Inspector Charles Stockley Collins. Collins had been a member of the Specialist Fingerprint Department at Scotland Yard since its early beginnings and had quickly risen to become department chief. Realizing this could be his first ever chance to convict a murderer using fingerprint technology he wastes no time getting the evidence back to the yard. With Collins off to find a match for the print, the legwork in the case ultimately falls to the third and longest serving heavyweight in Scotland Yard, Detective Chief Inspector Frederick Fox. DCI Fox joined the police back in 1873 and has worked hard to earn his reputation as a fine detective tackling some of the toughest cases Scotland Yard has ever had to face. The Daily Mail dubbed him an investigator of tragic mysteries, and this case will be no less tragic than those he's built his career upon. Five years earlier, in 1900, DCI Fox was in charge of a case where three men had carried out a series of burglaries during which they had shot and wounded police officers. When the gunmen were finally sentenced to eight years each, DCI Fox was commended by the judge, Mr. Justice Riley. Praise which was repeated four years later when Fox arrested two dangerous men for burglary after a violent struggle. DCI Fox is well equipped to tackle this case. He understands the kind of brutal criminals he is dealing with here 
and he isn't afraid to take them on. So with Inspector Collins back at Scotland Yard examining the fingerprint on the cash box, DCI Fox gets busy doing what he does best, gathering the evidence and witnesses which will pull this case together and find them a suspect. For Fox, the case seems relatively straightforward. No forced entry, two makeshift masks, a looted cash box, not to mention the fact that Mr. and Mrs. Farrow had both still been in their nightwear when they were attacked. A botched robbery with two, maybe three perpetrators and a rough time frame in which to search for eyewitnesses. Fortunately for Fox, there were several of those. Alfred Jennings, a milkman, and his young assistant, Edward Russell, had been on their morning rounds when Edward spotted two men hurrying from Chapman's oil and color shop. He thought it odd that the men hadn't bothered to shut the door properly and said so to his boss. The milkman, Jennings, called out to them that they'd left the door open. One of the men nodded back and said, oh, it's all right, it don't matter, before they both hurried off towards New Cross Road. Young Edward had told his father the story over breakfast, who'd reported it to the police as soon as he'd heard of the trouble over at Chapman's shop. Edward was in school when Fox and his men went to take his statement, and the young lad was able to give them a good description of the two men. The first, aged between 25 and 30, around five foot seven tall, had a round face, dark moustache, and wore a bowler hat and a blue serge jacket with a collar up. The lad noticed that he had a white collar below his jacket. The second man was a little younger and a little shorter, about 24 and five foot five. He had light brown hair and was dressed in a shabby brown suit jacket, gray cap and brown boots. He also had a mustache. Hearing the descriptions, Fox has a glimmer of an idea as to the culprit's identities. Two shady characters, brothers, he knows from the area. His suspicions are confirmed when a professional boxer by the name of Henry Littlefield comes forward. He'd been out in the early hours of the morning and had just got himself a coffee from a stall at the Broadway. He was heading home when he heard two men running up behind him. He looked around, but the men turned instantly and ran away, as though not wanting to be seen by him. He waited a few moments, thinking it strange, and then carried on towards home. As Henry got to the end of Regent Street, the same two men rounded the corner and came face to face with him. He immediately recognized one as Alfred Stratton, having known him for about six years. He knew the other man only as Albert and had known him for six months or so. Henry tells Fox that Alfred had said, hello, Harry, out again? To which he replied, yes, and I have good reasons to be out. Alfred had then asked which way Henry was headed. Henry told him and they said their goodbyes. During the time they'd been speaking, Henry noticed that Alfred kept looking to and fro, up and down the street, and that Albert seemed to be fumbling with his coat, as though he had something hidden in it. When Henry had looked at him, Albert had turned away. He identifies Alfred as wearing a brown jacket and brown boots, and Albert as being in a blue serge suit and a bowler hat. He says that when they parted company, 
the brothers had headed in the direction of the high street and Pharaoh's shop. Just like that, DCI Fox has his prime suspects. Brothers, Alf and Albert Stratton, are already known to the police as troublemakers, though they have no convictions to speak of. Alf Stratton has a few links with some shady elements in the criminal underworld, and his brother, Albert, is seen as a character of interest. A warrant is issued for their arrest. Meanwhile, officers waiting in the hospital for Mrs. Farrow to recover enough to give a statement manage to get just a few barely coherent sentences from her before she dies of her injuries on March the 31st, some four days after being attacked. From what they can glean from her and from the accounts that continue to come in from witnesses, Fox begins to piece together a version of events on that fateful night. An early knock on the door raises Mr. Farrow, bringing him downstairs, where he opens the door to his attackers. They come in, strike him once, disorientating him, and begin their robbery, searching for the cash box, raiding the till, and turning the place over. At some point, they must have heard Mrs. Farrow, gone into the bedroom, and dealt her a blow too. Then, realizing how bad things had just got for them, they had to finish the job on poor Mr. Farrow, leaving him and his wife for dead. They raided the cash box and looted the house in a hurry, missing some hidden cash, taking what they could find, and fled, having washed the blood from their hands in the hand basin in the shop. Not only were they spotted by a few people on their way there and away, but they unwittingly left a mark which would ultimately be their undoing. Over in the fledgling fingerprint department in Scotland Yard, Inspector Collins has identified that the greasy smudge on the cash tin tray is in fact a usable thumbprint, probably from a right hand. Since identifying the print, he's been running comparisons with the 80 to 90,000 sets of prints they already have on file, some 800 to 900,000 individual marks. So far, he's drawn a blank. Established in 1901, the fingerprint department grew out of work on a system based on detailing certain body measurements in order to give credence to evidence discovered at crime scenes. The first successful conviction using the new fingerprint technique had come about just a year after the department was established. On June the 27th, 1902, a burglary took place in a house in Denmark Hill, South London, where some billiard balls were stolen. The investigating officer noticed some fingerprints on the freshly painted windowsill of the property, and Collins, who was a detective sergeant at the time, went to the scene and took an impression. He checked that the marks had not been made by any member of the household, took pictures of the prints, and returned to Scotland Yard. He and his colleagues searched their growing database of fingerprints for a match, and lo and behold, up popped the name of 41-year-old labourer Harry Jackson, who was already in their records for a previous burglary. As it was a new technique, the team at Scotland Yard knew that they would need an outstanding prosecutor to make their case. They found that in Mr. Richard Muir, who went on to convince the jury of the absolute reliability of fingerprints as evidence. And Harry Jackson was found guilty of burglary and sentenced to seven years, 
Critics would argue that with Harry's previous convictions and the other evidence amassed against him, the verdict would have been the same without the fingerprint evidence. Nonetheless, an important precedent had been set, which would pave the way for Inspector Collins and DCI Fox now. Despite this early success, Inspector Collins and Assistant Commissioner McNaughton know they may risk ridicule relying too heavily on the technique here, given the high-profile nature of a murder case. It's still such a new and unproven method of identification. Even if they do get a fingerprint match, they will still need to convince a jury of the technique's infallibility if they are to get a conviction. They're going to have to do this the hard way. Fortunately, while his officers are out searching for his two suspects, DCI Fox is busy amassing more witness accounts. A respectable young woman, Ellen Stanton, who knows Alf Stratton as a man her soldier lover would nod to, also positively identifies Alf as one of two men she saw running away up the high street across New Cross Road and towards Wilson Street around the same time the murders took place. Her statement and evidence will prove key later in the case. At around 10.30pm on April the 2nd, a certain Detective Sergeant Frank Beavis is with some other officers in the King of Prussia public house on Albany Street when he spots wanted man Alf Stratton standing in the tap room, bold as brass. Beavis goes over and leans in. Alf, we want you, he says. Now, Alf already knows Beavis from previous brushes with the law, but he's not in the slightest bit phased. He turns to the detective sergeant, all smiles, and asks, What for, Mr. Beavis? For Ponsing? No, Beavis replies. I thought it was for living with Annie, says Alf, smirking. Annie is his pet name for Hannah Mary Cromarty, a known sex worker with whom Alf is currently staying. Beavis, annoyed with Alf's cockiness at this stage, just says, No. Where's your brother? Alf's eyes narrow at the mention of his brother. I've not seen him for a long time. I think he's gone to sea. Beavis tells him he's going to have to take him down to Blackheath Station for questioning on a very serious charge, which DCI Fox will explain to him once they get there. Alf Stratton is arrested and let out of the pub. The very next day, Detective Inspector Hailston is in High Street when he spots a man fitting Albert Stratton's description. He approaches him and asks his name, and when the unwitting Albert confirms Stratton, D.I. Hailston takes him by the arm and tells him to come along. On their way to the station, he says, I am an inspector of police and you must consider yourself in custody for being concerned with your brother Alfred in the willful murder of Mr. and Mrs. Farrow and stealing 13 pounds in money. Albert's face drops, incredulous. Is that all? he asks. And he means the money, not the murder charges. The brothers are taken to the police station, where both are fingerprinted. If DCI Fox and his team are right, 
and one of their prints matches the one on the cash box. This will be the proof that Inspector Collins needs to establish his case. Though the case seems clear-cut, the brothers' stories are mixed, and both try to present an alibi, claiming to have been with their lady friends at the time of the murders. But DCI Fox is convinced of their guilt, and is determined to prove it. Since Alf Stratton claims he was in bed with Miss Annie Cromarty until 9.15 on the night in question, DCI Fox sends a couple of officers out to find her, with orders to arrest her if necessary. It turns out Annie is only too happy to talk to the police for once, and comes willingly to the station. Accompanied by another officer, and with Alf's statement in front of him, DCI Fox puts his questions to Annie. At first, she is a little hesitant to give any detail, but as soon as she hears that the police found a reasonable sum of money on Alf when they arrested him, she starts to talk, obviously feeling that he has deceived her. DCI Fox already knows in his heart that Alf's alibi is false, and not only does Annie confirm this, but the other information they get from her proves damning for Alf. Miss Hannah Mary Annie Cromarty, known to everyone as Annie, describes herself as an unfortunate, a Victorian term for a sex worker. She also tells Fox she is pregnant with Alf's child, but knows he doesn't believe it's his. She also admits to liking to take a little drink and has been in trouble about it. She says she can't be sure Alf stayed with her all night on the 26th, but that he was certainly already dressed when she got up, and she remembers that his clothes smelled of paraffin. She does mention that Alf had asked her for a pair of stockings that night, but she didn't have any. This isn't all she tells DCI Fox either. Apparently on Sunday, the day before the murder, she and Alf had a row because there was no money, food or fuel in the house and he'd ended up punching her in the eye. Then, later that night, around midnight, when they were in bed, there was a tap at the window, and Alf went to see what it was and spoke to the caller in a low whisper. She says she clearly heard Alf say, shall we go out tonight or leave it for another night? She didn't see who the visitor was, but her neighbors in the same house, Francis Bain and Rose Wood, told her later, it was Albert Stratton. Apparently, later that morning, she and Alf were talking to a neighbor who told them about the murders, and Annie says she commented, oh, what a terrible thing. But Alf said nothing. Later, he brought home a newspaper which had details of the murder in it, and when she read the description of the murderers and their clothing, she said to Alf, isn't that like you? He just smiled and replied, Do you think I would do such a thing and take you out and walk around Deptford knowing I had done it? I shouldn't think so, Alfred, Annie said. But she tells Fox she wasn't convinced, especially since the papers said one of the suspects was wearing a brown coat and brown boots. Ever since that Monday, Alf's brown coat has been missing. He says he's given it away, but Annie knows he can't afford to do that. Plus, he started polishing his brown boots with black polish. The final straw, Annie says, was when he told her, if anybody asks you where I was on Sunday night and Monday morning, 
say I was in bed with you, and I went to get some work at Braby's at 9.15 and came back at 10. With Annie Cromarty's statement signed, DCI Fox brings Jennings, the milkman, and his assistant, Edward, back to the station to try and identify the culprits from a lineup. Unfortunately, neither of them can be sure if the prisoners they're looking at now are the same two men they saw leaving the shop. The lineup is a bust. DCI Fox knows he needs a positive identification to help his case. Fortunately, that comes shortly afterwards from Ellen Stanton, who reconfirms that Alf Stratton was the man she saw running away and that Albert was with him. With no eyewitnesses to the actual murder, Fox's case is as strong as it's gonna get. At the same time, Inspector Collins finds a positive match with the print on the cash box and Alfred Stratton's right thumb. He finds 11 points of similarity in the print and only four are required to determine a match. With the case against the Stratton brothers now established, Alf and Albert are charged with Thomas Farrow's murder. They appear at Greenwich Police Court on the 3rd of April, where they are remanded for a further eight days until the coroner's court can hear the evidence against them. The case is sent to Tower Bridge Court, largely due to Greenwich Court being too small to house the 40 or so witnesses, some more reputable than others, that DCI Fox and his team have now amassed. It is here that the brothers learn of the fingerprint evidence against them for the first time. In previous appearances in the courts, they had been seen giggling together or whistling popular tunes. They had even laughed at how having their own prints taken had tickled. Now, with this new evidence, they have reason to worry, and Albert in particular seems disturbed by the news. The brothers are kept in adjoining cells at Tower Bridge Police Court while the coroner's court hears the case. One morning, Albert Beckon's assistant jailer, P.C. William Gittings, over and asks him, How do you think I'll get on? When Gittings replies that he doesn't know, Albert asks if Alf is listening. Gittings looks over to the other cell and tells Albert that his brother is sitting reading a newspaper, which is when Albert makes a surprising statement. In a low voice, he says, I reckon he'll get strung up and I'll get about 10 years. He's led me into this. Don't say anything to him. I shall not say anything to him until I see there is no chance. And then... He stops talking suddenly and paces his cell, humming, before coming back and leaning close to the door. I don't want to get strung up, he says. PC Gittings tells the jailer, Harry Allchurch, who decides the statement isn't of sufficient importance to make a written report of it. A week later, PC Gittings happens to mention the conversation to Detective Inspector George Godley, who was DCI Abilene's right-hand man in the hunt for Jack the Ripper. Godley, fortunately, does think the statement is of sufficient importance and calls for an immediate report, which will add to the case for the prosecution. With witnesses all heard and reports submitted, on the 20th of April, three weeks after the murders, the coroner's jury returns a verdict of willful murder against both brothers 
and a trial date is set for the 2nd of May 1905 at the Old Bailey in front of Mr. Justice Channel. Mr. Richard Muir, who successfully prosecuted that first ever case to use fingerprinting as evidence, is to lead the prosecution. And as an enthusiastic ambassador of fingerprint evidence, he is delighted with what they're about to present. It's the 2nd of May, 1902, and brothers Alf and Albert Stratton are in the dock of the Central Criminal Court at the Old Bailey, waiting for the judge, Mr. Justice Channel. Channel is a tall, narrow-faced man with wire-framed spectacles and a reputation for old-fashioned impartiality. The prosecution, under Richard Muir, knows they have a case to prove, and the fingerprint evidence they are relying on will not be enough on its own. Witnesses Henry Littlefield, the boxer, and Ellen Stanton, who saw both men running from the scene, will be pivotal to their case, as will the testimony of Annie Cromarty. The defense, for their part, are not planning to give in easily. With one of the finest defense barristers of the Edwardian age, Henry Curtis Bennett, representing Alfred, there will be no pushovers. When all are settled in court, and the judge has begun proceedings. Richard Muir opens by stating that this crime is the most brutal he has ever prosecuted. He goes on to call witness after witness, laying a strong case that the brothers were not only present in the area, seen leaving the shop, and witnessed fleeing the scene, but that there is evidence they both planned the robbery and took weapons with intent to cause harm. Muir's witnesses also spoke to the men's characters, as a pair who somehow managed to subsist without doing an honest day's work. Tough, brutal young men who made their way in life by living with a series of women they sponged off and would often beat. In addition to the witnesses already heard, a young woman called Kate Wade testifies that Albert Stratton had been lodging with her at the time of the murders, but that he had not stayed with her that night. Her landlady, Sarah Tedman, however, claims that she saw the brothers with a chisel and a crowbar. Weapons, which Surgeon Dudley Burney later testifies, could have caused the injuries which killed Mr. Farrow. The defense counsel cross-examines, but turns up nothing of substance to discredit the prosecution's case. Now, Richard Muir had previously been confident of leading the jury through the intricacies of fingerprinting himself. But when he realizes that the defense intends to call a number of expert witnesses in the matter, he calls Inspector Collins to the stand to explain the technique. Using giant enlargements of the fingerprints in question, Collins and Muir lead the jury through the vagaries of this new technique. The defense do all they can to discredit the evidence, claiming that there are a number of differences on the prints, stating that despite some previous success, the technique was basically unreliable. In the witness box, Inspector Collins was not phased by the criticisms. He tells the jury that the differences can be accounted for by the different pressures at the time the prints were left, one in a hurry on a cash tray and one with purpose in a police station. He is able to prove this point dramatically and without doubt by taking the prints of the jurors several times at various pressures and showing how the differences occurred. 
The defense calls in their first expert to try to discredit the evidence. Dr. John Garson, who actually trained Collins in the technique, now disputes his evidence. Unfortunately, Garson's testimony begins to crumble when it is revealed that he is not an expert in fingerprinting, but in anthropometry, which is a rival method of identification. The court also discovers that during the hearing of the Belper Committee, Garson spoke out against fingerprinting. The final blow to Garson's credibility as an expert witness comes when Richard Muir reveals that Dr. Garson wrote a letter to the prosecution team at the same time he wrote to the defense, offering his expert witness services to both, depending on who paid the higher price, and before he had even seen the thumbprint. Well, the judge does not like this, and after Muir asks why Garson saw fit to write to both sides, and Garson replies because he is an independent witness, the judge proclaims, an absolutely untrustworthy one, I should think, after writing two such letters. Garson's testimony has been rendered little more than a joke by the cunning Richard Muir. The defense had been planning to call advisor Henry Folds, who didn't agree with the way Scotland Yard was using fingerprints, particularly when it came to basing an identification on only one print. After the embarrassment of the Garson testimony, they decide not to call him, in case Muir has something else up his sleeve to discredit Folds too. Instead, in their own closing arguments, they remind the jury that there are no actual eyewitnesses to the deed of murder, and without that, the prosecution's case is feeble and circumspect at best. In their own defense, Albert refuses to testify and Alfred claims that the whole thing has been a put-up job, arranged by Annie Cromarty because he treated her badly. He admits seeing the other witnesses in the morning, but claims that he and his brother had simply been hurrying back to Cromarty's house to sleep, and that they got up early and Albert left before Annie awoke. With the cases for both prosecution and defense presented, it falls to the judge's summation. On the fingers of your hands and mine, at the time of birth, there are certain lines, and no two persons are alike. In the same way, no two faces are exactly alike, and no two sheep in a flock. It's very wonderful. This was the brief, yet compelling summation of fingerprinting from Mr. Justice Channel to the jury. But he also warns that they shouldn't rely on the fingerprint alone in making their decision. In the end, it takes the jury just over two hours to agree their verdict. Guilty. The judge, donning his black cap, proclaims, the sentence of the court upon each of you is that you be taken from hence to the place from whence you came and that you be hanged by the neck until you are dead. And may the Lord have mercy on your souls. The chaplain echoes an amen and the brothers do not utter a word, looking blankly in front of them with consciences hardened to even this, the worst of outcomes. The judge gives them three clear Sundays before the date of their execution, urging them to make good use of the time to find some way to restore their souls. 
the Stratton brothers are escorted down to the cells. What strikes many who have been watching the trial from the start is that the brothers do not speak or try to comfort one another. They were joined in this crime, but committing it and being caught for it has separated them irreconcilably. The Stratton brothers, Alfred, aged 23, and Alberts, aged 21, were hanged on the 23rd of May, 1905, in Wandsworth. Both men walked to the gallows unassisted in white hoods. Before they died, Albert Stratton turned to his brother and asked, Alfred, has God forgiven you? Yes, brother. Their trial marked the first time in British law that a murder conviction was passed on the basis of fingerprint evidence. So intriguing was this new technology at the time that newspapers ran a detailed description of the technique, rapidly labeling it the criminal's deadliest enemy. The technique has since gone on to convict hundreds of thousands more, and fingerprinting is a widely trusted part of any forensic evidence these days thanks to a precedent set by a single greasy thumbprint left on a cash box tray by Alf Stratton back in 1905. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. We travel back to the 1860s for a classic whodunit. One morning, the body of three-year-old Savile Kent is found with his throat cut in the grounds of his home, Road Hill House. Who could have done such a terrible thing? An intruder with a grudge against the boy's father, Samuel Kent? Or was the truth closer to home and the murderer, someone from inside the house? Without any real evidence to go on, the local police are soon out of their depth. Then, help arrives from Scotland Yard in the shape of Inspector Jonathan Witcher. Almost immediately, Witcher believes he knows who did it. The question is, can he prove it? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Poirot for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Sean Coleman. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias Torres Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Kian Ryan. Morgan. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.